if we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery with its row upon row of simple white markers bearing crosses or stars of David. They add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. And hour number two is underway once again. Thanks for joining us. Nine minutes past 10 o'clock on this Thursday, the 28th morning of the fifth month of the year of our Lord 2020. Senator Joni Ernst going to be joining us in about a half an hour. And uh, thanks again to Pete Hegseth, who joined us last hour. Right now, it is my uh, pleasure and privilege to bring on our regular Thursday guest at this time, Dr. Everett Piper. He is a columnist. For the Washington Times, he is also a best-selling author. He's the past president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University, and I'm also told he's now a radio host in his home state of Oklahoma. Dr. Everett Piper, good to have you back. How are you? I'm doing great, Bob. Thanks for that little plug. I've got yeah, a lot tell me to more learn. about that. I'm certainly, certainly not as good as you are in terms of being a host. It's a different model, as you know. I think I can bring some red meat as a guest and give you what you want. But when you reverse the roles and have to carry the heavy lifting as a host, it's a bit of a different story. So I'll learn as I go. The show is called The Rebellion with Dr. Everett Piper. And I use the quote from Peter Kreeft, or at least a paraphrase of it, and that is, in times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. Oh, I love that. I love that. That's such a great, great title and, uh, and a great backstory behind it. I love that, and I wish you very much success. And I have no, no doubt whatsoever you're going to pick it up like uh, in no time flat and become an expert at that, as you are at so many other things. Uh, so, Dr. Piper, right now we'll let you assume the role of guest, and let's talk about some of the... Um, some of the issues you and I often talk about are faith-related. You, in fact, one of the, the second thing we're going to talk about is your uh, your status as an evangelical and whether or not you are uh, you are surrendering that title for a reason that we'll get into in a moment. But uh, because of your status as a lifelong evangelical and a person of faith, um, we talk oftentimes about scripture. We talk oftentimes about the role of faith and religion and our freedom to practice it here in the United States. And now, once again, we're getting into a battle. You wrote about. Um, Religion and faith versus science. Because Joe Biden, the presumptive Democrat nominee, says we need a uh, believer in science as a president. We need somebody who believes in science. In other words, suggesting that the opposite of believing in science is believing in faith. And yet it's Joe Biden who appears to be, as you wrote very well uh, in your column this week, uh, he seems to be the one who is uh, a little bit challenged when it comes to understanding science. Can you explain? Yeah, it's in my column for the Washington Times. And, you know, the interesting thing is people say they believe in science. Joe Biden's tweet, as you just quoted it, we need a president who believes in science. 
belief. Belief in science means that you have faith in science. So they are sawing off the branch upon which they sit again, as the left always does, by saying stupid things like, I can't tolerate your intolerance. We need a president that's tolerant, and I can't tolerate one who isn't. That's essentially the same thing that he just tweeted. You can't make the argument for belief without acknowledging others who have beliefs. Now we have to start, we have to work our way backward and consider the evidence for beliefs. The facts that we have before our eyes, that's what science is all about. Pursuing those facts, pursuing truth, because you, you acknowledge that there's an objective reality out there, and the more you find out about that objective reality, the more you're going to be a rational person that understands how to function in a real world. Well, Biden is the one who denies the reality of the female. Biden is the one who tells us that biology no longer defines the sexes. Biden is the one who just last week said that if you ain't voting for me, then you ain't black. So he's denying the biological reality of African-Americans and black people, because if you don't have the right ideology, then I'm not going to acknowledge your biology. This is a science denier par excellence. And then, you know, one of my biggest beefs with him is he denies not only the science of biology, but he denies the reality, i.e. the science of history and economics. We've just put 40 million people out of work, and this man is denying the reality that socialism is going to make it worse and not better, and that socialism and collective government and big government has resulted in 100 million deaths over the course of us trying to orchestrate this as a solution to human, uh, human need. I go on and on, and I basically say, please stop. Please stop calling us the science deniers. Please stop implying that Republicans and conservatives are somehow dopes and rubes and deplorables and uneducated fools who don't believe in reality when your party is the one who's telling us we have 58 genders and your party is denying the reality of black people and your party is the one that denies the facts of socialism and returns to that stupidity like Solomon tells us in the Proverbs like a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. I, just please stop. Stop implying that I'm a science denier. Well, you know, that's, a, that's a fantastically stated already. But I want to talk about the second half of your column in which you talk not just about, you know, who's a science denier and who actually believes in science, but the, the battle between science and faith. You know, I mean, this obviously it's been going on in the, since the history of humanity, whether or not you believe in God, whether or not you believe in a higher power, an afterlife, et cetera, et cetera, or uh, whether there has to be scientific proof for everything. Scientific proof essentially is the opposite of having faith. So some people believe the two cannot coexist. But as you point out in the second half of your column, countless numbers of our political leaders, our elected officials, and some of our founding fathers uh, have, have essentially said, yes, science and faith have an extraordinarily important role with one another. Absolutely. So again, let me repeat what science is. Science isn't just biology and physiology, physiology and genetics. You've got the science of economics. You've got the science of history. Science is, imper- is pursuing the empirical facts of reality. Well, history has empirical facts, so let's go back and look at history. If you're denying history, then it's synonymous with having bad science, because you're denying the reality of our past and what we know to be a fact. 
well, what we know to be a fact of our founding principles, the science of our founding principles, for example, is that religion is integral to the freedom and the argument, uh, argument of freedom for the United States. For example, FDR, a Democrat, said this, we cannot read the history of our rise and development as a nation without reckoning with the place the Bible has occupied in shaping the advances of our republic. That's a lead Democrat. Another one, Harry Truman. The fundamental basis of this nation's law was given to Moses on the Mount, and the fundamental basis of our Bill of Rights comes from the teachings which we get from Exodus and St. Matthew, from Isaiah and St. Paul. Harry Truman. Now, you know I go on and on and cite Teddy Roosevelt and Andrew Jackson, but one of the great quotes that we should all commit to memory is John Adams, one of our founding fathers. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people and is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. So Joe Biden and the Democrats don't tell me to get religion out of politics. Religion belongs in politics because it is the foundation, the cornerstone for a free republic and the history of the United States. If you look at it objectively and rationally through a good scientific eye, proves that. Dr. Everett Piper joining us on AM 1420, The Answer. Terrific column for the Washington Times. you got to read that. Uh, just log on to WashingtonTimes.com and, of course, follow Dr. Piper as well. That's probably the best way to do it is uh, follow do- uh, Dr. Piper on Twitter. He is uh, Dr. Everett Piper, all one word, D-R-E-V-E-R-E-T-T, Piper. Dr. Piper, let's move on to what I was talking about, and I kind of inadvertently went out of order. Um, your status as an evangelical. Uh, you have been an evangelical for a long time. You uh, you know, are, are leader in that regard. Uh, much of what you write about is faith-based. And you kind of have said you're, you're shedding that label for a particular reason. And it has something to do with other evangelicals uh, saying and doing things that are just simply uh, incomprehensible, to be quite honest with you. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. And again, those that are uncomfortable with what I'm going to say right now, listen. Don't react negatively until you hear me. In other words, my brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm not abandoning my faith. That Not at all. In fact, I'm saying this to my evangelical friends. The evangel is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the saving grace that we experience through confession and being born again. That's the evangel of the gospel. Evangelicals get their title from the evangel. We've always honored the inerrancy of the word. The Bible is true. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It is the authoritative word of God, and it tells us how to have a relationship with him now, how to be forgiven of our sins, and how to attain eternal life. I believe all of that. But my evangelical brothers and sisters have lost their mind, case in point. An article, an open letter in the Washington Post just this past week from quote-unquote two evangelical leaders who are condemning our president for declaring the church being essential. So we have a president who says the church is essential, and I believe all the governors and mayors across the land should release the church because it's essential to do its good work of the gospel and be evangelical. And I've got evangelical leaders, quote-unquote, from Wheaton College, Wheaton College, who are writing an open letter condemning Trump for saying the church is essential and saying he's compromising our ability for a sound testimony and culture by endangering people's safety. This is crazy. It is terrible exegesis. 
it's politicizing the word evangelical to the point that it means nothing anymore other than woke, emergent, social justice warriors rather than standing firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can't even claim to be an evangelical anymore. Somebody said, well, what are you calling yourself then? I'm calling myself a biblically orthodox Christian, because evangelicalism apparently no longer stands for that. I love that title. Uh, say it again. Biblically biblical, orthodox? Go, go a ahead. biblically orthodox Christian. Biblically, biblically orthodox, orthodox Christian. Orthodox, yes. We're creating a new title. And I love it, by the way, and I love you. I, I wouldn't want to be associated with anybody who would say such things either. And to declare that the president is wrong, that churches are not essential, for goodness sakes, you if you are a person of faith, even if you're just a layman, but you just are a person of faith, you recognize how essential it is, especially if you are a leader. If you are a leader of your faith, if other people look to you for guidance and you are suggesting that this is not accurate, that this is not as essential as, I don't know, a liquor store or a pot dispensary that is open, uh, I just I I can totally understand why you would not want to be affiliated with that label. Not your faith, just the label. Dr. Everett Piper is going to continue with us right after this on AM 1420 the answer. Okay, 10:24 we continue now with Dr. Everett Piper who is a columnist with the Washington Times and, again, a best-selling author as well. Uh, Dr. Piper, let's stay on on matters of faith here, and it's kind of interesting. It's We're staying on science, too, to a degree. A Harvard University professor by the name of Steven Pinker, who is a professor of psychology, which would be a science, um, has declared that a belief in heaven has harmed the response that we humans have, have made uh, to the coronavirus. Because we have devalued human life. In other words, he is suggesting that because people believe in heaven, they don't really care about saving everybody. They're willing to reopen faster than they should. Because if people die, eh, it's no big deal. They're going to a better place anyway. They're going to heaven. So he is suggesting that a belief in heaven actually leads to more death on earth. Um, I'm going to get out of the way. Let you go. <laughs> uh, another angry atheist condemns religion as being the worst the worst disease that has ever plagued the human being in the name of science uh, by the way he, he, he does this in the name of science as a professor professor of psychology he's saying psychologically a belief in heaven leads people to devalue life while they're here okay there's so much to be said and i know i've got to be brief again recognize that he starts out his condemnation of belief by using the word belief so I, I want to turn around and ask him, does your belief that the human being is nothing but an evolved amoeba degrade and devalue human dignity and human identity? Does your belief that we are nothing more than an evolved ape degrade and devalue human dignity, human morality, and human culpability? Does your belief <laughs> that we have no moral significance above and beyond the dog, the pig, the cat, the cow, to quote PETA, does that degrade and devalue human dignity and human identity and moral culpability? Which belief system results in claiming that there's no such thing as truth and that's the truth? Does mine or does your belief result in that? This, this claim is an angry tirade against religion and against Christianity. It's really not against religion. It's against biblical Christians. It's against the moral claims of Christianity. 
and this is an angry tirade akin to Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and the other new evangelicals that are claiming that they need to make religion illegal. They're actually claiming this because it harms society. So this is not just something for us to snicker and laugh at. This is something for us to recognize that at a time when the government is shutting down the church and telling you you can't go this weekend to worship in your church unless you comply with government restrictions, at a time when our government is saying that, we've got this guy from Harvard saying what the church represents anyway should be shut down because it degrades and devalues the human being. This is at a time when even the United Nations... Uh, 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 the, the leader of the United Nations, whatever his name is, I just forgot it. The leader of the United Nations has said that one of the greatest risks that is happening to humanity during the COVID crisis is depression and suicide and a sense of being purposeless. Now, at a time when even the United Nations is saying that, and 500 doctors just sent a letter to Trump last week saying one of the greatest risks we're facing right now during the COVID uh, pandemic and the government's reaction to it, the shutdown, the lockdown, the sequestering, the quarantine, is that there's a rise in suicide by 600%, 600% in California, 600% in California. And this guy is saying that the very entity that has been the solution to human purpose, the very entity that is defined what we are as human beings and elevated the definition of the human being to the imago dei, the image of God, rather than degrading it to the imago dog, the image of the animal, the very entity that gives you and me purpose and tells us how to confess and be redeemed and treat others with the same type of dignity. That should be shut down and replaced by what? These arrogant fools. <laughs> That's what they're claiming. As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to its folly. And this is what this professor of psychology at Harvard is proving. And, you know, the most frustrating thing, well, among many frustrating things, is this is Harvard. You know, we are told that this is, you know, the the pinnacle of education, uh, that the Ivy League schools are the pinnacle. This is where you go if you really want to truly be enlightened and if you really want to truly want to be elite as as well. And this is this is what they teach. This is what they are, you know, for for $60,000 a year or whatever it is at each of these schools, this is what the, you are sending your kids to learn. These are the kinds of people that you're sending your kids to learn from. That, to me, is the most, one of the most astounding things, Dr. Piper. It is. Last statement, Harvard was founded as a Christian institution, so was Yale. Do you know what the mission statements of both of them were? What? Lay Christ at the bottom as the foundation of all learning. They were founded. They were founded to perpetuate a biblical worldview because as we started the program, that was acknowledged as the only pretext that would work for creating a free country and a free republic. And like so many other things through the years, through the through time, and through de-evolution, essentially, uh, they have cast aside their founding principles. Dr. Everett Piper, terrific, terrific analysis all the way around. Great article this week as well. Thank you so much, sir, and we'll talk to you again soon. Hey, blessings. Bye-bye. Dr. Everett Piper on AM 1420. The answer takes us to the bottom of the hour news. And on the other side of that news, it'll be a Another pleasure and another privilege as we welcome Senator Joni Ernst to the program. We're going to talk about the COVID-19 response. We're going to talk about what happened in Minnesota. We're going to talk about everything that's going on in this country with uh, one of the 100 most powerful people in America.
That's right, or maybe 102 if you count the president and the uh, vice president. But a uh, United States senator is extraordinarily important, and we're going to talk to Jimmy Ernst next. Ten thirty-six. Now we continue on AM fourteen twenty. The answer and our cavalcade of amazing guests continues today. It really has been an amazing day. Pete Hegseth joined us in the first half hour, or first hour of the program, rather. Doctor Everett Piper uh, just finished up. Tremendous insight from him, and now it's a pleasure and a privilege to welcome Senator Joni Ernst to the program. Iowa Senator Joni Ernst has a new book out called "Daughter of the Heartland: My Ode to the Country That Raised Me," and it is glorious. Senator Ernst, it's so good to have you on the program here in Cleveland, Ohio. How are you? I am great, and and thank you, Bob. I really appreciate the time. Oh, it's an honor to have you. It really is, and uh, and I'm very much looking forward to talking a little bit about what the genesis of your book was, what uh, inspired you to to write uh, Daughter of the Heartland, and talk a little bit about what some of the issues uh, that are facing our friends, and in particular the farming community in the heartland. But I want to start, if I may, uh, by by just kind of picking your brain a little bit about what's going on in our country, uh, Senator Ernst, because... Quite frankly, I'm very impressed and proud of you and the rest of the Senate, which is in uh, session and doing your jobs. And I'm wondering if you're not just a little bit frustrated with your colleagues in the lower chamber who uh, have refused to come back to work. Uh, Nancy Pelosi didn't call them back. And now when they finally did, 75 Democrats didn't show up. Do you feel like you're kind of fighting this whole thing alone? Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, I, I tussle about it, but for heaven's sake, yes. Okay, so folks, <laughs> I'm sure in Ohio and Iowa understand that, you know, when you have a job to do, it's important that you show up. And I think it's rather ironic that our essential workers, our truck drivers, our convenience store clerks, our healthcare workers, they're all showing up for work every single day. So my my thought is that maybe Nancy Pelosi and the people in the House of Representatives that aren't showing up, maybe they don't believe that they are essential. Um, that, and that's if that so is well the said. case, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I just look around my own community, and God bless them. We have got some really tremendous people that are showing up to work. And you know what? They make a heck of a lot less than someone that's serving in the House. And yet they're out there every day serving their communities. And I think those House members that are choosing, just simply choosing not to show up, shame on them. Uh, they were elected to represent their people. They need to be there. And I, I was chuckling because I was thinking about Leader McConnell's comments on how maybe those of us in the Senate, you know, we can drop over there and pick up their mail, maybe water their plants, you know, because they're not there. <laughs> you know, they're not there. Well, you know, it's it's very frustrating uh, for a lot of us, you know, who are just civilians and, and constituents to know that they're not there. And I wonder, Senator Ernst, if the reason they're not there is because Mitch McConnell and other leaders in the Senate have said, you know, that uh, $3 trillion uh, socialist dream bill that they uh, passed out of the House, um, it's not going to see the light of the day, on, uh, the light of day on your side. As we fight to try to recover from 
not just the virus, the coronavirus, Senator Ernst, but also from the steps that were taken to battle the coronavirus. In other words, the cure that the president talks about, which has been in many ways worse than the actual virus. Uh, as we try to come back from this, they're pushing not a relief bill to actually put more dollars in the hands of business owners who are suffering and struggling and workers who have been laid off, et cetera, or had their hours cut. They want to advance every democratic socialist dream that they've ever come up with before, putting money in the hands of illegal aliens, legalizing uh, all of the illegal aliens, uh, and and every pet project that um, you know from Green New Deal type things uh, to to socialist uh, economic principles. Can you believe they even passed that, Senator Ernst? And why are they doing something they know is absolutely never going to come uh, come near uh, being passed by the United States Senate? Well, that is a really great question, and I'd love for Nancy Pelosi to answer that. And and the folks here in Iowa are not going to have it. They are not going to have it um, when they are doing wide-sweeping policy changes that we're trying to do them that impact the livelihoods of farmers and ranchers here in Iowa. They're not going to have it. Would it include certain bailouts for uh, communities and for states that, uh, have managed their budgets quite poorly in the past for an Iowa taxpayer to say, hey, yeah, I'd love to bail out, you know, Chicago or the state of Illinois. Um, no, it's not going to happen. I, I think they need to step back. And for Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer to say, hey, the bank is open, um, shame on them. Absolutely. It's pandering. I mean, it really is pandering to the American people. And when you step back and you think about another 2 to $3 trillion package and the impact that that would have on our own families, on our children, and the debt that they will have to repay, um, uh, Iowans at least, are not, they're not going to have it. We are talking with Iowa Senator Joni Ernst, talking about uh, how to best recover from this uh, COVID-19 and uh, what kind of obstacles we face, including uh, House Democrats, quite frankly. Let's talk about uh, the recovery and what is going to happen. We just got the news this morning, Senator Ernst, 2.1 million more Americans filed for unemployment. So we're pushing up near 40 million unemployed in the last eight or nine weeks due to this and uh, the reaction to or the response to all of this and the shelter-in-place orders that closed so many businesses. Um, do you think that we are on the right track to recovering? Because I'm looking at blue states or states with Democrat governors. They don't seem to be very interested, quite frankly, in recovering as quickly as we can. Am I being too cynical, Senator Ernst, in suggesting they want Americans to suffer for another five months so that it uh, becomes harder and harder for President Trump to win re-election? Yeah, I think that's the ultimate goal. They're not really focused on their constituents and really getting America back up and going. They're very much focused on keeping America as low as possible. You know, they want to extend the additional $600 per week unemployment through the end of January. And what we have seen is that even though businesses are opening up again and they're doing it safely in in the least affected communities, they're still wanting people to stay at home and not go back to work. And if we do that for another six, seven months, how do we expect the economy to recover when these businesses will be filing for bankruptcy because they don't have the labor pool necessary uh, to provide service to customers or consumers? Um, the, the Democrats are way overplaying this. Um, I have folks that are anxious and ready to get back to work. 
And we are doing that in the state of Iowa. We are opening um, large in part, but again, doing it safely. You know, I had a good friend that said, man, there are so many people that have dug themselves into a foxhole. They've buried their heads in the sand. But you know what? At some point, we've got to get up out of that foxhole. And the sooner we can do that safely, the better. And we're doing it right now. There's no reason we can't get our economy back on track. So the the Democrats are really using this as a political weapon. They're trying to capitalize on this horrible thing that is the pandemic. Um, but large in part, it's it's time for. Senator, are you still there? Okay, Senator, the Senator's phone either just had a glitch or it cut out completely. Did we lose the line? We did not lose the line. We just lost her voice. Uh, Senator Ernst, we can't hear you. Um, if there's perhaps an inadvertent touching of the mute button, maybe we can reestablish that. I'll tell you what. I want to finish this conversation, and I want to talk about her book, Daughter of the Heartland, My Ode to the Country That Raised Me. So let's take this time out since we've got a tech glitch here. We'll take that time out early, and we'll come back and finish our conversation with the great senator from the state of Iowa, uh, Joni Ernst, right back after this. Okay, it's 1048, and we have reestablished our connection with our guest, Senator Joni Ernst from Iowa. We had a little bit of a tech glitch, but we've got her back now here on AM 1420, The Answer. Senator, thanks so much for sticking with us, uh, especially oh, through yeah, the, uh, the extended you time bet. there. I do, I, I'm glad we got you back, because I definitely want to talk about your book. Uh, and by the way, I love your foxhole references. If anybody knows about them, <laughs> it would be you, for those who may not yeah. realize your history. Uh, Senator Ernst uh, spent 23 years in the United States military. She served as a company commander in Kuwait and Iraq. She led 150 Iowa Army National Guardsmen during Operation Iraqi Freedom. She retired as a lieutenant colonel in the Iowa Army National Guard. Uh, and your service to this country is so appreciated, Senator. Thank you so much um, oh thank you it's such a great honor so you did all of that but you were born on a farm and uh being from iowa that's not a surprise there are a lot of farms in iowa and and i want to talk a little bit about that and about your history and i said i mentioned at the top of our interview give me the um give me the genesis here the idea for daughter of the heartland my ode to the country that raised me why did you want to write this book you bet. Well, it is. I hopeful. Uh, I'm hopeful that it is an inspiring story for others. I was raised on a small family farm, rural Iowa. Uh, my parents taught me from a very young age to work hard, work with your hands. No job is beneath you, um, and that resiliency of learning to deal with drought, with flood, with you name it. Um, really took me through then the other chapters of my life serving in the United States military um, and being deployed overseas for Operation Iraqi Freedom and on into the United States Senate. But most importantly, that resiliency carried me through a number of very difficult times in my personal life. And one of the, the inspirations for the book was the fact that I wanted other folks to know that you don't have to let Challenges define who you are as a person. You can overcome. I had one woman that said to me, Joni, you went through these personal challenges. You went on to be a battalion commander. You went on to be a United States senator. And it gave her, you know, the the light at the end of the tunnel, that uh, realization that you can suffer from traumatic experiences and yet go on to do good things for your community 
and uh, to heal in your own life. And, and that's what I want people to know, is that we can overcome those challenges. Senator Ernst, you uh, mentioned in the book that you not only grew up on a farm, but you worked the fields uh, endlessly, and you talk about the plight of farmers. And I want to quote briefly, Iowa farmers have not rebelled against the president over the tariffs. They're hoping for long-term rewards, and they don't trust the Chinese, neither do I. But the fear of economic suffering is well-founded. The president and I speak often, and I appreciate his willingness to listen to and hear from me. So you write that of the you know, the tariffs that have led to, uh, well, quite frankly, a lot of negative short-term consequences for the farmers. Um, can you expand upon that? Tell us what you see as being the end result here, and how much, uh, how much uh, of a struggle is it in the meantime? It is, it is a struggle, and that's a great way to put it. It is a struggle, and there are great hardships across farmland uh, here in the Midwest. And, you know, the, the thing about it, and the media will spin it a different way. They'll always say, oh, President Trump is hurting the farmers. They must not support him. Um, but they do, because he's the one that gets it. He understands that the Chinese have treated the American farmer and rancher horribly. Over decades, uh, they have cheated the American farmer and renegotiated contracts as, as those commodities are out at sea. You know, they've really, really been so bad to the United States. And so at a farmer roundtable, at the very end of it, um, one of our farmers, he stood up, he slapped his hand on the table, and he said, I get why President Trump is doing this. I get it. And is it hurting? Yeah, it is. But he said, but what I don't get is why we didn't have a president that would stand up for us against China before. You know, why didn't they do that? So the American farmer, I think, in Iowa, the people that I talk to, they appreciate it. They can go through hardship, but they appreciate the president. You know, that's a multi-billion dollar question. Uh, why no president has ever stood up against China before this. It's one of the reasons why we elected President Trump. One of the very important reasons, seriously, he said we are going to not be taken advantage of by our foreign trading partners any longer. We have been taking massive advantage of us, uh, and, uh, and it's going to end. And he has done exactly that. Again, we know there are some certain groups that are going to have a, a little bit more of a struggle in the interim while the, you know, the end result is worked out. But it is so good to know that they trust him and that they trust the plan that at the end of the day they are going to have those long-term rewards and we all are um but that's only going to happen senator ernst if we give him a second term uh it's going to be it's going to be hard to do all of that in the next five months and especially because of what we're dealing with as a country right now how do you assess the chances of finishing what he started and with your support and those of other Republicans in the Senate, um, given the fact that we're dealing with now 40 million unemployed because of the uh, COVID virus and the response and, and the challenges that come with that in the next, uh, next uh, five months of campaigning. Well, and I would say here in Iowa, and I don't, I don't pay attention to the polls because the polls are going to be spun however the pollsters want them to be spun. Um, but I would say just in talking to Iowans, they appreciate what the president has done. He has given more attention to the Iowa farmer than we have in any number of past administrations, Republican or Democrat. You know, he really does care, and he's made it a point to come to Iowa on multiple occasions and speak with farmers. Um, so it, it really does show that he is moving forward in a meaningful direction. And I would say 
he's going to carry Iowa again, and I think he's going to be given that opportunity for a second term. Um, again, don't pay attention to the polls. I pay attention to the people. And what I hear coming out of Iowans is that they appreciate the policies that he's been able to put in place. Um, I don't listen to the spin, you know, coming out of the media. I listen to the people. Senator Ernst, last question for you, and this might sound a little bit odd, uh, because you're not facing bullets uh, in Washington, but I want to ask you, which was tougher to fight, the swamp in Washington, and to get things done, you know, for this country in, in the manner that you are, and the, the, the battlefields that you, that you had to serve in when you, uh, when you were in the military, and you were leading those, uh, uh, those uh, guardsmen uh, in, in Kuwait and in Iraq, um, you know, you're, they're two very different types of battles, but I, but I wonder if, if one of them isn't any more serious than the other. I would say um, much more difficult um, fighting uh, in the swamp in D.C., and there are several reasons for that. But first and foremost, you know, fighting and, and wearing our nation's uniform overseas, you know, I had a tremendous company. All of these um, men and women serving in the Iowa Army National Guard you know, I trusted them to do the right thing. And, and I knew that they would work very hard for me. And they did. They, they were tremendous. So even though we experienced um, physical separation from our fam- families, um, the physical uncomfortable atmosphere environment that we lived in with 142-degree heat, that's Fahrenheit, folks, 142 degrees, you know, sweating literally into our boots, every single day and during sandstorms, um, you know, sleeping on the hood of our Humvees and on the backs of our trucks as we were doing deliveries. You know, that's that's the American soldier right there. But you know what your mission is. You know you're going to complete your mission. You're going to face those adversaries head on. But it's a little trickier in Washington, D.C. You know, your adversaries. Well, the fact that you know your adversaries. You and you don't know it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, when and you're over there, you know who the enemy is. And, and and when you're in D.C., you might not. You know, you would think that your allies would be the Department of Justice and, and the FBI, for example, but then you see what they did to the incoming president and That's his, uh, you know, in the transition. I mean, you know, at least when you were over there, you knew you could trust the people you were with and you knew who the enemies were. And in Washington, that's exactly. very, very different. It's tough in the swamp. You bet. Wow. You bet. Well, uh, Senator Ernst, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on, and I can't wish you the uh, the best of luck or, or enough luck uh, with the book, Daughter of the Heartland, My Ode to the Country That Raised Me. It's a fantastic read. I've read a lot of great excerpts from it already, and I'm looking forward to finishing this book about uh, Senator Ernst's history and, uh, and uh, the values that she learned in the heartland, what she learned while serving this great country, and what she is going to continue to do in the United States Senate. Senator Ernst, thank you so very much. God, God bless you, and I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. That's Senator Joni Ernst. She uh, she went overtime for us because we had a phone glitch and we had to take a commercial break in the middle of the conversation. And she hung with us, and I really appreciate that. That's a, a tough thing to do because she has a lot of interviews whenever they're uh, on book tours like this. So I uh, really appreciate her staying in with us. All right, uh, great conversations all the way through today, quite frankly. Really st- uh, great to start with another warrior. You know, it's kind of funny. We had two military veterans today, uh, very well known as well. Pete Hegseth joined us in the first half hour, of the pro- or the first hour of the program, rather, at 935. So if you missed that interview, you can get it on our website, whkradio.com. Go to the local podcast page and listen to the conversation with Pete Hegseth. Then, of course, we had um, 
Uh, we had Dr. Everett Piper last half hour, and then of course Senator Joni Ernst. So really, if you missed any of those video or uh, any of those interviews, rather, no, they're not videos; they're just audio. But you can get that audio at whkradio.com. Look for podcast, then look for local podcast, and find the Bob France Authority. That's it. That's all the time that we've got for today. Thanks very much, Andrew. Thanks, thanks very much to uh, Marcy, our team, and thanks to you for listening. Uh, stay where you are. Mike Gallagher is coming up next. Stay there for Dennis Prager. Stay there for Dr. Gorka, for Jay Secular Live, and, of course, Larry Elder. And I'll talk to you tomorrow after Hugh Hewitt on the next Bob France Authority. Be well, be safe, be free. Bye-bye.